Jackson Hammond, president of CHIA, and welcome to CHIA's webinar on institutional liability, clinical programs, and quality. We have over 700 registrants for this webinar, and we encourage all of you to open your chat screen so that you may dialogue with each other and enter your comments. If you have questions, please post in the chat room. And if time permits, we will identify you and your question for the panelists. Today, we have distinguished panelists who are addressing this topic from the perspective of an accreditor, a university professor and president, and from government affairs interpretations of the language that has been provided by the Department of Education. Let me first introduce our impressive panelists. Dr. Sunny Ramaswamy is the president of the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities. The commission accredits institutions of higher education in Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, Washington, and British Columbia. Prior to joining the commission staff, Dr. Ramaswamy served for six years as President Obama's appointee as director of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture in Washington, DC. He also served as Dean of Oregon State College of Agricultural Sciences, director of Purdue's Agricultural and, uh, and head of Kansas State Etymology Department and as professor of entomology at Mississippi State, Dr. Sunny Ramaswamy. Dr. Marcy Stoll is chief executive officer of the Accreditation Commission for Education and Nursing. ASCEN accredits nursing education programs throughout the United States, US territories, and internationally. She came to ASCEN from the Southern Association of College and Schools Commission on colleges, where she served as vice president. Previously, she was the founding president for Coleman College of Health Sciences, which is part of the Houston Community College system. Dr. Stoll also served as interim president at Lord Fairfax Community College and has held academic and administrative positions at Niagara County Community College and Piedmont Virginia Community College. She began her career as a registered nurse. Dr. Peggy Valentine is the interim chancellor at Fayetteville State University. Prior to her role as interim chancellor, she served as Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Winston-Salem State University, where her responsibilities included oversight of educational programs and clinical laboratory science, exercise physiology, healthcare management, nursing, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and rehabilitation counseling. She also had administrative responsibilities for the Center for Excellence for the Elimination of Health Disparities and the RAMS and the RAMS Know How Mobile Clinic. Her clinical experiences include work as a registered nurse and as a physician's assistant, she is founding editor-in-chief of the Journal of Best Practices in Health Professions Diversity. 
Dr. Thomas Smalling serves as Executive Director of the Commission on Accreditation for Respiratory Care, known as COARC, which accredits education, educational programs throughout the United States in the preparation of respiratory therapists for practice, education, research, and service. He has worked in the respiratory care profession since 1987 and joined the respiratory care program faculty at Stony Brook University in 1995, where he also served as director of clinical education. Prior to his appointment as co-arts executive director, Dr. Smalling served as a board member for four years. He previously served for a number of years on the board of directors of the New York State Society for Respiratory Care, including as president. Also joining us is Jan Fritz, Vice President for Government Affairs with CHIA. Jan has spent the last 13 years as the government liaison between CHIA and congressional leaders. He is an ardent and vigilant voice with expertise in legislative interpretations. Jan is an attorney by discipline and has served in various national political campaigns. Welcome to our distinguished panelists. I think it is evident that institutions and accrediting organizations have had to make immediate accommodations for assessing quality performance in higher education during this COVID environment. What is also clear is that there is not a national roadmap or guidance that speaks to all of the circumstances of every institution or program. Clinical and field experiences are unique circumstances that are compounded by the epidemic and certainly have presented liabilities of risk for institutions, students, faculty, clinical settings, and affected communities. Sunday, let's begin with you. You initiated the suggestion for this webinar. Please share with us some of the discussions from your stakeholders that triggered this interest. Yeah, good afternoon, uh, uh, Dr. Jackson Hammond. Thank you so much for uh, having us here. And, and thank you very much for convening this uh, critically important conversation as well. And, uh, uh, you know, Ever since the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic started uh, back in uh, Feb January, February, uh, pretty shortly after that, several of us, particularly members of the, uh, uh, the Council of uh, Regional Accrediting uh, Commissions, we got together and then we started talking about the challenges that our institutions face and that we needed to get the approval from the Department of Education, uh, the United States Department of Education, uh, to go ahead and provide the kind of flexibilities needed for our institutions to be able to deliver uh, education uh, for remote learning, online education. And uh, that was, uh, that sort of flexibility was provided very, very quickly, as a matter of fact. We appreciate the Department of Education stepping up very quickly to provide that, uh, uh, that flexibility. But at that same time, there were questions asked by a number of our colleges and universities uh, that have programs where there is need for hands-on learning, experiential learning, and, and uh, particularly in the clinical sciences. Also, some of our uh, uh, community colleges that uh, have career and technical uh, 
programs, for example, in welding or other aspects, they were all asking these questions about how do we go about, you know, in the context of the pandemic itself, how do we go about enabling the possibility that the students are going to have that hands-on learning as well? So that was the, the, the context. And, uh, you know, several of us reached out to our colleagues uh, within the various uh, programmatic uh, accreditation community here in the United States. And uh, uh, everybody from, you know, uh, the programmatic accreditors that accredit nursing programs to physical therapy, to psychology and counseling, to the veterinary schools as well. And uh, so they all went ahead and agreed that, yeah, you know, these are extreme situations, extreme circumstances. We should go ahead and provide this sort of the flexibility. And so the colleges and universities in our region, as well as other parts of America, uh, started allowing, you know, simulated experiential learning. And uh, that was very, very helpful at that moment. But as the uh, spring term progressed and we got into the summertime and it looked like the, the COVID uh, situation was not going to ease up, uh, the questions that came to us was, now what do we do? You know, how do we continue on into the fall term and into, you know, potentially maybe to next year, 2021 as well, uh, where we cannot continue to have these simulated uh, hands-on learning type of uh, experiences for our students. And so uh, that was the genesis of, so how do we go about doing this? And also the other aspect of it is if in fact, colleges and universities go ahead and allow for students to have actual hands-on experiential learning, what is the liability for those institutions? Uh, because potentially these students may become infected if they don't have appropriate uh, uh, protective equipment. And so that's the conversation. And that's when I you know, reached out to uh, you, uh, Cynthia, and, and your staff about the possibility of the convening this conversation. And I think it's a really critically important uh, uh, conversation. I truly appreciate our colleagues uh, from some of our uh, uh, clinical areas that are here as well to join us. And uh, uh, so I hope that we can come up with a common sense approach as we go forward, where the individual students are protected and they can get their experiential learning that is part of their training and, and educational uh, programs and that they need finish up and, and graduate and go on to, you know, the careers that they want to go on to as well. Yeah. So I want to stop there, Sophia. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And, and we do know that the federal government has stepped up and provided some protections for existing professionals uh, in the healthcare field and volunteers like paramedics and, and, and people who are already there, but there's not a, a lot of guidance or protections provided for university um, uh, students uh, or institutions, and that that may come from a state level. Uh, Jan, uh, why don't you tell us what we know from the federal landscape as far as protections for universities against COVID liabilities? Thank you. Or, or just uh, if that's not necessarily something that's, that's a given, what's the activity that supports that? Thank you. It's, it's good to see so many people on this webinar and thank you to those that are joining us. Um, first of all, let me talk about the Department of Education. Um, in conversations with them yesterday and reviewing some documents, uh, they have provided waivers for institutions and accreditors to allow distance education and uh, virtual visits, et cetera, so that institutions can move forward uh, in a way that 
that works for them and for their students. Uh, my biggest concern was when that would end. And the information provided by the Department of Education says that those waivers will end the, the later of December 31st or the last day of the national emergency. So uh, clearly the national emergency is not over at this point. Um, it's not likely to be over in the first semester next, uh, next year. So these waivers continue for a period of time. Now, as we talk about uh, liability protection for universities and for training facilities, right now we have a, a split, a party split. The Republicans are working very hard to get liability protection in the law, in the uh, stimulus bill for institutions and training facilities as long as they follow the CDC guidelines. If they're following those guidelines, uh, once, there should be protection for them. The Democrats, uh, particularly on the House side, have said that they generally don't support that. But on the Senate side, Senator Murray has been much more um, adamant about opposing a liability shield and in her words saying it would essentially say that it's okay if students and employees get sick. Um, what she's looking for is a more cl clear enforceable standard and guide from the federal government and she's looking for that from the Department of Labor through OSHA. Uh, right now she's concerned about the lackluster and manipulated CDC guidelines. So uh, it really depends on if there's a compromise. And, and as you well know, there are two very big things that are impacting uh, these protections. One is COVID-19 dominates everything. And there are a couple of bills that are proposed, the House Democrats are at $2.2 trillion for a COVID stimulus package. That doesn't include liability protection. The White House has gone to 1.8 trillion uh, with no conversation about liability protection. And the Republican Senate is at about $500 billion in stimulus money, but it does include liability protection. Uh, the Speaker of the House has said that if they don't have resolution on a stimulus package today, they're not going to vote on it before election. Uh, the staff members that I speak with have told me they don't see anything happening until the lame duck session, which is after the election, and some of them don't see anything happening until after the inauguration. Uh, this presidential election is, uh, I'll use a kind word, it's bizarre. It's, it's the most unusual election we've ever seen between COVID and uh, the lack of rallies and, and uh, public appearances and the vitriol that is going on. So I'm not sure where we're gonna end up. I think the pundits are probably right, but I'm not gonna predict myself. Uh, so 
liability protection is a concern for some of Congress, but there are some people in very influential positions that just don't feel like uh, those that put students in a situation where they end up getting sick should be excused from liability. And that's a big problem. So as universities and colleges, uh, you need to be very concerned about the situations you put students in. And yet in the licensing area, you have to look at what the states permit and require. So some will allow virtual uh, clinicals and some won't, and it changes by profession. So in the same state, it's not consistent. So with that, I'll leave it to the experts to talk about that, the, the accreditors and, and Dr. Valentine who are on the ground. But thank you, thank you, Jan, for that for that uh, update. And it seems like uh, Tuesday, which is today, was the uh, uh, the the day of reckoning that we know hasn't quite reckoned yet. So uh, we we must constantly be uh, on alert to see what is going to be happening on the hill in that regard. But you know, there are many institutional programs that incorporate hands-on or clinical practice. And that has always been such a critical need or um, uh, a catalyst for understanding and connecting theory to practice. And I think students look forward to that actual hands-on experience. And you know, two such programs, nursing and respiratory care, have been the focus for so much discussion because of COVID, because that's, that's where the emphasis has been in saving lives. Uh, Marcy and Tom, what, what discussions uh, in those fields are re that's related to clinical are you hearing? And are, is there a concern uh, regarding reframing quality preparation and quality experience? And then we're going to go and uh, talk with Peggy. Thank you, Cynthia, for having us participate in this webinar. I greatly appreciate this opportunity and honored to be here with everyone. Um, <laughs> I think everyone felt the impact of COVID in the spring semester where there was uh, sudden impact, uh, specifically for any of the health sciences, nursing, respiratory therapy, but the many others we found ourselves with the clinical situation immediately or almost immediately shut down uh, for very valid reasons. The students could not go into clinical, whether it was in a long-term care facility, an acute care hospital, community setting, or what, whatever the setting might be. And so quickly, the faculty needed to regroup and try and figure out what do we do from here. For the students that were closest to graduation, the impact um, certainly was uh, significant. However, many of those students were able to graduate because they were so close to completing their program. The students that were early in their program or mid-program the longer term impact yet 
is to be seen. Um, over the summertime, there were many organizations in nursing that came together, such as ODIN, CCNE, ACEN, NCSBN, AONL, uh, the State Boards of Nursing, and others to work together to work with the hospital partners and the other kinds of setting partners to reopen clinical. And to a certain extent, over the summertime, uh, there was some reopening and there, the reopening has continued through the fall semester. But like many healthcare professions, nursing is yes, the lecture component, which has been moved to online, However, there's two major hands-on components, the on-campus lab, whether it is a low fidelity or a high fidelity situation where you can use simulation, but the students need to be on campus, and then the clinical face-to-face -face working directly in some kind of care setting with patients, families, clients, whatever they may be, may be called in that setting. And so the liability um, has been a challenge because many of the care settings have asked for the faculty and the students to sign liability waivers. And there are still limitations in the practice environment, whether it's on campus or in clinical, um, in access and in the quality of the experiences. So the longer term impact yet is to be seen on the students that are still enrolled and trying to come into the profession of nursing. Tom, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I agree, Marcy and Cynthia. <clears throat> Due to the increased risk of potential exposure to COVID patients, we've had a number of clinical sites within respiratory therapy that are preventing students from working directly with our COVID-19 patients. And that's also with not just COVID-19 patients, but also in the emergency room, two areas uh, of, of the hospital that are very important for students to, to kind of learn those uh, skill sets. Um, in some cases, they're preventing students from attending their clinical site entirely. And this has adversely affected the student's ability to complete their clinicals in a timely fashion. And in some cases, it's delaying graduation. Similar to what Marcy had mentioned, those uh, students in that kind of March, April, May time frame earlier this year, they were pretty much done. And so we left it up to, to the each individual program to decide whether that individual student <clears throat> met those clinical competencies or whether or not they, the, they needed to extend their time to graduation. So those clinical sites that were allowing students to, um, to go to clinicals uh, were doing so, but in many cases in a reduced number. So those programs uh, that were already limited at clinical resources pre-COVID were experiencing greater difficulties. We also had a, a number of our programs specific to respiratory. As, as you know, there was a severe ventilator shortage in a number of states and we had um, a number of uh, states and subsequently programs that were impacted because either they were voluntarily or involuntarily by uh, order of the state to, to loan the ventilators out to combat the shortage. So this resulted in a shortage of resources to train the students 
that were actually going to use the ventilators in those facilities. Uh, we've also had um, instances where students have had to sign those agreements um, to do uh, kind of waivers, if you will, similar to what nursing to, to enter into the uh, clinical environment. And we've also had uh, a number of programs uh, have the added burden of uh, being told, listen, the, the clinical site cannot uh, do the fit testing for the N95. As you know, many respiratory therapists, uh, most of their treatment is very hands-on, high-tech, aerosol-based. So they needed to conduct the fit testing themselves rather than the clinical site. So these result in unanticipated costs, difficulty in getting supplies, because many of the programs were non-patient care facilities. And so they were unable or very difficult, uh, had a very difficult time in getting those, those uh, supplies to provide to their students so they could get fit tested and cleared to enter into the facility. You know, we, we are spending, uh, you know, thank you so much. What we're listening to is perhaps uh, a, a representation of what's happening across other universities and with accreditors about clinical as it relates to life, life valuations or, or life decisions. Uh, one of our participants reminded us that uh, aviation also has a clinical that has life um, determinations about the effectiveness or the efficiency of the person who's operating that flight. So it's, it's important that when we talk about these things that we look broadly at all of the other clinical programs and how they are managing their risk or making uh, trying to mitigate the risk that they are involved in. Uh, Peggy, as a as a as a registered nurse, as a physician assistant, as a president of the university, what are the concerns of faculty and students regarding clinical preparations, and are there associated risk and liability for the virtual preparations and placements? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you again for having me on the program today, and it's a pleasure to be with such an amazing panel. Um, group of panelists. Uh, at Fayetteville State University and also my colleagues across the state who are involved with health sciences, you know, liability is something we're always concerned about. Liability for students to make sure that they get the quality education they need to be the competent health professionals that they are expected to be when they graduate. For the faculty is the concern that in, amid COVID-19 that the students get what they need. And so the steps that we have taken have been multi multiple uh, steps that we've taken. Number one, to make sure that, first of all, that our students know how to protect themselves because when they go into the clinical setting, they can also carry the virus from with them to, to the patients that they're serving. And so we've taken a lot of steps to make sure that students are protect themselves. We do testing to make sure that they're negative before they go into these settings. Um, secondly, as, as uh, was mentioned earlier, um, many of the, of the healthcare facilities have reduced the density. They don't want as many students in those settings as they have been in the past. And so what the faculty has done, um, we take half of the students and we get the 
clinical training on site on campus while the other half of the students go into the clinical setting. And at some point they switch. And so guaranteeing that the students have quality, we know that we can control for what students get when you're in a setting, a virtual setting. In the hospital, you know, that guarantee is not there, but it depends on the types of patients that you get. So it's important that we uh, cover the gamut, that the students have exposure to those virtual cases they're likely to see going forward, and also what they're being exposed to now. And so for the past few months, we know that there have been more patients who've been hospitalized with respiratory conditions, uh, such as COVID-19. And so you may have fewer cases of, of persons who come in for elective surgeries and other types of exposure that students would get. So the faculty has taken upon the responsibility to make sure that we have a variety of experiences virtually and in the clinical setting. In addition to the facilities, the facilities want to make sure that um, they provide a safe training environment for our students. And so all of us share in that um, responsibility to make sure that students get the quality of education they get, also reducing the liability to the university, to the educational programs themselves, as well as for the healthcare facility. I was just wondering, thank you. I was just wondering that if there is no universal uh, liability coverage from the states uh, uh, as it, to protect uh, universities, are institutions requiring their students to sign any liability waiver um, as they are being placed? And, and how is that uh, faring with students and families? Yes. So first of all, all students have to have some liability insurance. And so that if there is a risk to the families, then the university has that, that insurance that can cover those situations. Students sign a waiver before they go into the clinical setting, just like they would sign when they come on campus. Uh, those who are living in dormitory or in residential life situations are also at risk. And so they're required to sign a waiver. These waivers are not necessarily mandatory, but it's something that we put in place so that the students are aware that there is risk, just like with everything else in life. When we go into the grocery store, we're at risk. When we go um, to many places in, in, the, in the world, there, there's a certain type of risk, but we can mitigate that risk by the things that we do to protect ourselves and protect fellow students and protect the patients that we're taking care of. You know, the, there's another uh, uh, discipline, education, that also requires student teaching or some level of clinical before student teaching, where they have to go into the schools, uh, the schools that are open at least. Yes. Uh, and if those schools um, uh, are expecting university students to be there, I'm wondering if the idea of signing a, a liability waiver is going to, uh, you know, sort of transfer to other disciplines within the university. Have you had any of those conversations with any of your colleagues? Well, the position that we're taking is that it's everyone's responsibility to create a safe environment. And I know that some, some universities, some institutions require students to sign waivers We've taken the position that all of us are responsible for our actions. 
And when we go into healthcare settings or school settings, then we have to create an environment where we're respectful of others by protecting ourselves and protecting them, the other individuals whom we come into contact with. And so those are the positions that we've taken. And um, we want to make sure that the, whatever we do is administered in a safe way that we protect the general public because the general public is expecting that we would take whatever steps we need to take to protect them and making sure that the students continue to get a quality education learning experience despite COVID-19 or other health conditions that may emerge as a result of, of the crisis that we're currently undergoing. That's, thank uh, you. Cindy, thank if you. I may, yeah, respond to that question about the education and student uh, teaching and all that. All of those are, you know, currently, at least as we've heard, all, all of those are being done uh, over, you know, these media like the Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and other media that are being used. So the students don't, uh, you know, don't really have to go into class, the classroom, at least the student teaching part of it. Uh, very slowly, at least in this part of the country, very slowly, uh, you know, schools are starting to open up. Uh, but uh, uh, really, the expectation is that the, the uh, students in education programs at this time are not expected to go into the classroom to do their student teaching, experiential learning, et cetera. And that's what I've heard. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely true. I mean, it's true that they are not expected, but I'm still wondering if students are concerned about the delay in their graduation and what happens if they are not able, what is it, is it some, to some degree, the level of the institution to provide an alternate way of completing their student teaching and, and we're, we're gravi gravitating to student teaching because this requires a licensure exam as well. And states require certain hours within the school. So the same thing happens with, uh, with nursing or respiratory um, uh, exams that there's an exam that has to be taken and the state requires certain things. So how is that being addressed when someone has to sit for an exam but has not necessarily completed all of their uh, uh, clinical experiences for one reason or another? And what does that, how does that impact, uh, you know, especially students who are having to seek loans to continue their education? Can anyone speak to that? If I could pick up from there, and I would love to hear the other panelists' thoughts on that as well. In the healthcare setting, all of the faculty members are licensed professionals. And so they are aware of the standards. Uh, the programs work in collaboration with the certifying boards. In this case, it may be the Board of Nursing. And there are standards that the program sets that students are required to meet before they can graduate. And so as our, if our faculty, our faculty are licensed, they're able to provide those educations that students need to be able to pass a licensure exam and assure public safety. And so uh, I think the same would apply for teacher education as well. The, the teachers are, are licensed um, and they would also be aware of the standards that the students must meet in order to graduate and certify that they are well prepared. Uh, thank you. Are, are accreditors re-examining their expectations regarding institutional provisions of quality evidence? Are you, are you rethinking 
or uh, you know how an institution can provide evidence of quality when it comes to to clinicals or is it necessary to do that at, at this time the the approach that the ACEN takes regarding outcomes uh, we have four large kind of buckets, if you will, related to outcomes. Uh, bucket number one, end of program student learning outcomes is what we call them. You may know them as uh, competencies, but that um, has been around forever. And I envision that discussing and looking at what is the graduate able to do upon completion of the program is going to be here for a while. I don't see that going anywhere. Uh, then the other three relate to the licensure examination pass rate and how the program, and this isn't um, the student perspective, but from an overall perspective of the students that graduated from that program, what percentage of those students passed on the first attempt of the examination over that 12-month period. Then the, the third one is program completion, and the last one is job placement. I don't anticipate that those outcomes themselves will change, but what I do know is the ACEN Board of Commissioners is composed of 17 members. 11 of them are nurse educators. They are faculty who are working every day and, and living this experience as we speak. Three of them are nurse clinicians who are actively practicing in the field in some type of care setting. They are living this experience as we speak. And then three are public members and our current three public members understand higher education and understand accreditation. I share all of that because I know that they're very compassionate, very aware people. And as we move forward in time, the outcome of the extent to which a program is able to demonstrate the success of their graduates, whether it's on those uh, end of program student learning outcomes or licensure, program completion and job placement. This whole COVID situation, I just know my board and they will take a look at the circumstance in which we're currently in, in a year or two or three from now, know that they will give consideration to what is going on now as they make accreditation decisions then. What's interesting about nursing, and I'm sure many other professions, whether it's in the health sciences or not, is most of these professions are regulated at the state level or the district or the U.S. territory. As an accrediting agency, the only decision that we really have is the program is accredited or the program is not accredited. But when it comes to the regulation of the profession, then you have a nursing, a state board of nursing that regulates the licensure of those nurses. And in nursing, we're talking several levels of licensure, practical nursing, registered nursing or advanced practice nursing, 
such as a nurse practitioner, a nurse midwife, a nurse anesthetist, certified nurse specialist. The state is responsible for that level of licensure. But the other hat that they wear is, except in the state of Utah, is the regulation of the education of students in that profession. And those state boards have their own rules and their own regs, and they vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They may or may not call out a specific minimum number of clinical hours. They may or may not allow the use of simulation. And if they don't, it can't be used as a substitute unless that Board of Nursing, and many did this, allowed under an emergency order the use of that, that distance ed or that simulation as a substitute. If they do allow for simulation, then there's varying levels of percentages that is acceptable. To the best of my knowledge, um, up to 50% is the, the biggest percentage I've ever seen. And again, I don't know if under emergency order that was increased. So accreditors, we look at the outcome through the form of quality and then the regulation of the profession at the licensure level and at the educational level is another body that a university, that a program needs to um, also be mindful of and balancing all of these uh, bodies, whether it's an accreditor or a state regulatory agency, as they go about their work. Okay. I know, Tom, you have similar situations in uh, respiratory, correct? Yes, Marcy. Uh, in the respiratory care pro profession, we have one credentialing body that requires that graduates be from an accredited program. Uh, the state licensing agencies, and we have, we're licensed in 49 states, with the exception of Alaska. They have similar requirements that applicants need, need to be graduates of an accredited program. So they, they don't have specific language in, in their, their state uh, statutes that, that require additional clinical requirements and to my knowledge, there's no distinction between uh, clinical experience with live patients versus a virtual environment. Co-works and outcomes and competency-based accreditor. So the number of clinical hours needed for, for, is determined really by whether the, the students achieved all their required competencies before the graduation. Uh, each program determines how competencies are to be taught and assessed under these circumstances and whether a particular competency should be performed uh, either or evaluated in a lab setting or a clinical setting. Keep in mind that simulation was being done in many of our programs, but very little was being done in the virtual environment. So uh, some clinical experiences uh, can be replaced with simulation or telehealth, etc. Others like many uh, uh, intensive care unit skills, uh, need to be postponed until clinical sites reopen in our profession. So while the co-work, we promoted maximum flexibility regarding distance learning, clinical education, realistically, there's no circumstance in which all elements of an in-person, face-to-face clinical instruction 
and psychomotor competency assessments can be performed in a virtual environment. So campus closures and lack of access to clinical experiences preclude the adequate teaching and assessment of psychomotor skills. So programs have to, in some cases, we've, we've explained to them, and in those cases, they've, they've got to delay completion with the access to those in-person training uh, situations allow for the adequate instruction and assessment of the competencies. Right. So, I'm going to ask something that might be a loaded question here. Um, if if the, the outcomes are, are certainly that a student should be able to pass the exam, how critical are hand, I mean, a face-to-face -face clinicals in the program? And if it can, and if the competencies can be uh, accomplished through virtual, do you see a decline post-COVID or just, yeah, COVID just going away, do you see a decline and a focus on students actually, regardless of what the discipline is, actually doing a face-to-face? -face? Uh, I, I keep thinking about aviation <laughs> uh, and respiratory and nursing. Does the student really have to touch to, to be engaged and to have another level of competency of performance? Um, absolutely, they need to touch. And the ACPM has the expectation that there is direct, hands-on um, patient care that occurs in every single program. Simulation is a wonderful learning and teaching opportunity it offers many, many benefits. But I honestly do not believe that it replaces face-to-face -face the reality of taking care of a patient in the real world is very different than the simulation world. So yes, they have to touch. I can have a student in a lab inserting an IV, doing a, doing a blood draw, any number of psychomotor skills in a mannequin, but until you actually do it in a patient, it is very different. And the same thing with affective skills too. And the application of the cognitive skills varies also in the clinical setting. It is Sim can work, it does work, it works well, but it is not a 100% substitute for the real thing. Totally agree, Mark. Oh, yeah, go, go ahead, Tom, please. No, I was going to say, I, I, I totally agree. Um, in, in, in our environment, respiratory therapy, similar to, to nursing, we, we see virtual <laughs> clinical simulation as an adjunct uh, to, but not a replacement for real life patient clinical experiences and the development of critical thinking skills. Yeah. So if I may, uh, Cynthia, to bring a little levity into this, uh, uh, reminds me of the Holiday Inn commercials, right? Uh, I stayed at a Holiday Inn, so now I'm a brain surgeon or yeah. I can play an plane or whatever. And I think, you know, these simulations and all that, as, as Marcy said and Tom said as well, and they'll only go so far. I think you know the guy Smith posted as well on uh, uh, in, in the chat box 
and and I think really, you know, do we really want to fly in an airplane where a fellow that learned how to fly on a simulator or whatever, right? I mean, uh, so these are things that where it takes us to a certain extent, but really then it's literally hands-on. That's critically important for us. And and so in the context of the COVID situation, uh, there's some effort that's going on at multiple institutions on figuring out how best to protect the individuals and, and the students and the faculty that are involved in, in helping educate and mentor the students as well. So I think that's a really important aspect of it is that you know, several people have posted on in the chat box about PPEs and other things as well. Uh, and I think we've been remiss uh, in as a, as a nation in not providing for those sorts of uh, support to our institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we are such a, a fast response society. We want everything right away. Uh, we want immediate fixes. And there are just some things that that uh, should not fall into that category. And life and death situations of, of preparations to preserve life in any regard should not be a part of that discussion. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the level of investments that universities are putting into these kinds of expectations and experiences for students. Uh, I, I can imagine that that universities have really had to go beyond the usual protocols for providing opportunities for students to do clinical. They have to now, you know, especially in healthcare, they have to provide in some situations their own PPEs. There is um, uh, expectations that students may have to be placed in, in settings that are further away from, uh, from university advisors or people who can monitor. There are, are technology emphasis that are being put in place in order for students who don't have access to, uh, to technology in order for them to fulfill that. Uh, from a business point of view, do you see these investments that were put in as immediate re, uh, uh, resolutions continuing or, or do you think that these kinds of investments will yield and we will go back to the way things used to be? If I could respond to that, I would say that the, the world has changed and the way that we educate students has changed. Uh, I do believe that post-COVID, we will hold on to some of the things that we currently do. We may go back to doing some things, but I think that the future is, is different for education, especially for clinical education. Um, I think that technology will have a greater place in terms of how students learn. And I agree that the, the hand, there's nothing like touching a real patient. You can't learn to put in an IV, for example, without um, using a, a live human because blood vessels are different in different people. Uh, but I do believe that technology can teach us a lot. And through the debriefing after a simulation, for example, helps to improve critical thinking skills. Um, the use of telehealth, you know, now that we've moved to this virtual world, even for, for all of us, you know, uh, I had a virtual doctor's visit during COVID-19. I think that that may continue for a while. And students can learn how we can use this technology in terms of patient visits, through patient education, and also through education in terms of how we move forward and how you identify what's serious and what decisions need to be made. 
So I think that this new world is, is changing and technology will continue to drive a lot of what we do, but nothing will replace hands-on. I may add to that, uh, Cynthia, that uh, so at our annual conference coming up, the Northwest Commission's annual conference coming up uh, on the 19th and 20th of November, I've got uh, Tony Salcito, uh, who does the higher education practice for Microsoft, and he's going to be talking about uh, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and all that as an adjunct, adjunct to education. And it only enhances the, the, the learning of the students, but you still need that sort of the hands-on. In fact, I've been in a conversation with Tony and the others that are saying, but education is a contact sport. You got to contact, you got to get in, in the arena and start doing things as well. So I think really, you know, as we see more and more of this technology coming into play and that helps, augments, as they say, but not replace. It will not replace, not only in, in these sorts of uh, uh, clinical and, and practical educational type models, you know, whether it's aviation or whatever else that we've got, welding and things like that. But even in our regular educational models, you know, we cannot have you know, machines and, and artificial intelligence replace our instructors. I and mean, the point of the matter is, it is that human interaction and that, that contact as a contact sport. Education, you know, really is enhanced by that sort of an uh, uh, effort. You know, you mentioned you mentioned innovation, which is which is very much the push uh, to for universities to become more innovative uh, in their work. And certainly, I think accreditors are also looking for that for that level of innovation to ensure, as we uh, round out the twenty first century, that our students are prepared for what's going to come down down the pike. Um, and so the technology part is really going to be critical and and so useful as we begin to look at how virtual reality or virtual clinicals can be um, appropriately used, not to uh, not to diminish face to face, but how to innovate more efficiently uh, for the students who are going to come for years to come for, for the years to come. Has there been any, uh, another uh, uh, framework, has there been any thought to, especially our healthcare providers, going into some level of agreement with hospitals regarding liability coverage for students? Has that conversation come about? Because students are being placed all over the United States in, in hospitals and care facilities. Is, is that something that's on the horizon that universities should, should think about? Well, well I, can, I can share that at, at um, most institutions I work in the educational institutions, you're required to carry malpractice insurance for your students. And it's part of the cost of, atten of attendance that a certain portion of your tuition goes to pay for malpractice insurance. And there has to be a certain amount of insurance that the institution has to carry per student. Um, I think right now it's up to about $3 million. And so um, it is a requirement, at least for the institutions where I've worked. Okay. That's, that's good. If, if I may, um, I think I'd like to add at this point that there's, there really is an important opportunity for people on the call to contact their member of Congress and their senator to tell them how they feel about liability protection in, the, in this unique time. Um, if they feel like 
Congress ought to pass a liability protection bill for institutions trying to provide educational experiences, they should communicate that. If they feel like that's not the case, they should communicate that. If they feel like if they're meeting the CDC requirements, they ought to be protected so that these students can move through their programs. Contact your member of Congress and contact your senator and tell them that. That's how we get things done. And it's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder than it already is. So uh, if there's going to be some stimulus bill and we can get some liability protection so students can move through, that might be a good thing. But it's going to take a little work on our part. And Jan, what do you advocate for? Uh, you mentioned call your congressperson. What about at the state level? Should there be any focus or force that to be reckoned with at the state level to encourage the conversation? A, a number of states have provided liability protection. Not all, but the same principle goes for your state representative and your state senator. Contact them and tell them that you need liability protection. Uh, the reason for this is to get students through the program and get them into the practices so that they can help us move through this unique crisis. Um, in states, you can write to the governor. It, it makes a bigger difference than if you write to the president. Uh, if you wrote to the president here, he would get that letter in about six weeks because of all the checks that they put it through. Uh, so contacting the governor is important. Contacting your state people are important. Contacting your Congress people, very important. To yeah. Yeah, this is Marcy. Uh, in Georgia, I know that our state level government did pass liability legislation for employers, which encouraged employers like colleges and universities um, to go back onto campus and begin the education of students, at least in the on campus environment. I do not know if there's been any extension um, and that liability also would apply to a healthcare provider employer, but I don't know if it's connected to having students um, and that liability question that Cynthia just asked. So a number of states have not provided it for students and I, I view that as an oversight because they were moving very quickly. They wanted to get the economy moving again, so they provided it for employers. If they have provided it for employers, there is no reason that they shouldn't provide it for institutions. There's functionally no difference because the institution as an employer is protected for their employees. Why can they not be then protected for their students? And although we are talking about liability and risk uh, associated with placement, we do know that students also uh, tend to be a little, can be a little nervous and also uh, think that it is uh, okay or appropriate to uh, foul risk concerns against the university. So these discussions probably especially at the university level, needs to perhaps be elevated to a concern where a student might say, you know what, I, 
I'm a good student. I couldn't be placed. I didn't pass my exam. I'm going to blame someone, you know, and usually that someone is the institution. So the discussion that we are having today kind of goes from that level all the way up to uh, the placements. So as we round out the end of this discussion, uh, I want to ask one question and would like for each one of you to respond. Should the public be concerned about the varying degrees of quality for preparation for new graduates in, the, in light of COVID? Well, as, as the educational institution who's represented here today, I'd love to start. Uh, first of all, knock on wood, we have not had any students who are coming after the institution for the quality of their education. I do believe that our faculty takes every step possible to make sure the students get what they need and they're well prepared when they graduate. So I don't have any concerns about the quality of education that our students receive at this particular institution. And I do believe that faculty around the nation wants to make sure students get what they need to be quality health professionals when they graduate. I did check with our uh, team here at Fayetteville State in reference to signing waivers. And so um, we have not instituted a signing of a waiver for students to do clinical practice, but what hospitals do, they make sure that the students are well oriented so they know how to protect themselves when they're in a healthcare setting, when they may come into contact with a person who may have COVID-19. So, um, so in general, I believe that, that we're doing the right thing um, as, as, as institutions who are preparing the next generation of health professionals. Tom? I, I, I definitely agree. Um, <clears throat> we're set up, as I mentioned before, as an outcomes competency-based accreditor. So no matter what method you use to instruct and evaluate your students, at the very end of it, you need to make sure prior to graduation that that student is ready for entering the practice. And then the other check and balance, if you will, is a natural credentialing exam that determines the minimum level of competence required for entry into uh, the workforce. So we do have those checks and balances in place. Marcy? Um, for the ACEM, as I've already indicated, we take an outcomes-based perspective. Accreditation visits continue as we speak. We're doing them virtually. We will continue without losing a day to assess the quality of the ACEN accredited programs. We will continue without missing a day to continue to assess the quality of those programs in the upcoming semesters. And I do not have any concern about the quality of the graduates that will be coming out of the ACEN accredited programs the same high standards are being upheld. They're just being looked at using this type of technology at the moment. I have personally participated in virtual visits. In fact, I'm doing one this week. Um, and that's how I spent my morning. And the, the process is identical. Nothing has been altered. The standards have not been altered. The standards will not be altered. It's looking at the outcomes and then working with the faculty if there is 
any um, decline in those outcomes, working with the faculty to bring everything back to expectations if there's a need to bring anything back to expectations. And providing them the time and the support to work through the process of bringing things back if there's anything that needs to be brought back. And I'm unaware of any accrediting agency and we have had multiple conversations almost weekly at the specialized and professional accreditors through ASPA uh, discussing the impact of COVID and the, what everybody is doing. And I have not heard one accrediting agency say that they are lowering their standards. Everybody continues to maintain quality review process um, and the standards, and we'll continue to work with the programs and the faculty to assist them and support them through the process. Sunny, any thoughts? Uh, I just say, ditto, and leave it at that. Well, well, thank you uh, all. This has just been really, really very exciting conversations, and I am absolutely sure that the participants uh, through the chat room have connected and have some thoughts based on what was presented today, and that these kinds of conversations will continue, and I hope that they will continue uh, at universities uh, and colleges and uh, at, in the healthcare pro uh, profession. And I want to close by offering a document that I recently found uh, from the American Council on Academic Physical Therapy, ACAPT. It's called the Guidance on Participation and Clinical Education Experiences and Experiences in Physical Therapy Education. And I, I thought that it was uh, a really good document and that it provided some guidance in working with students uh, doing their clinical experiences. Again, it's the American Council on Academic Physical Therapy. Thank you so much, panelists, for your energizing conversations. And thank you all participants for being a part of this vital conversation. Thank you. Uh, Sunny, are you? Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Cynthia.